0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening. Yay. Good evening. Good evening and welcome to tonight's program hosted by the Commonwealth Club of Silicon Valley. My name is LaDaris Cordell and it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt, professor of psychology at Stanford University and author of Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think and Do. Dr. Eberhard has been a member of the Stanford faculty for more than 20 years and is the co-founder and co-director of SPARQ, S-P-A-R-Q, a university initiative that uses social psychological research to address pressing social problems. She has worked extensively as a consultant, and her groundbreaking research has helped law enforcement agencies and companies like Airbnb and Nextdoor address the issue of bias in their business practices. In 2014, Dr. Eberhardt was awarded the MacArthur Genius Grant. I should add, she's also appeared on Trevor Noah's show. It's (laughs) awesome. So ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt. Over there. So, welcome. Um, I have read uh, your book twice uh, because it was that engrossing. <laughs> um, so, at the beginning of Biased, you write, this book is an examination of implicit bias. You go on, implicit bias is not a new way of calling someone a racist. In fact, you don't have to be a racist at all to be influenced by it. And you finish, implicit bias is a kind of distorting lens that's a product of both the architecture of our brain and the disparities in our society. So let's talk first about the architecture of our brains. You conducted a study that was the first to demonstrate how race influences basic functions of our brains. So tell us about it.
1: Yes, I I mean, I just had a fascination with how our brains can be shaped by experience, and so that includes social experience and, um, you know, our culture. You know, our brain can be shaped by our culture. And so I was um, interested in uh, what's something called the other race effect. And so this is a phenomenon that researchers have known about for decades now. And it's basically that people are much better at recognizing faces of their own race than they are at recognizing faces of other races. Um, and researchers believe that this has a lot to do with experience. we typically have more experience with um, sort of people of our own race, and so that can um, you know actually explain some of it and so we were interested in looking at the neural underpinnings of this and so with a number of researchers at Stanford, we conducted a neural imaging study where we uh, put people in a scanner an imaging scanner, and we showed them the faces of, of people of their own race faces of other races, and we just looked at um, what happened in the brain, and we were very interested in this uh, specific area of the brain called the fusiform face area, or the FFA, and we found that when they were looking at faces of their own race... That area, the neurons in that area uh, were just more active. You know, the neurons were responding more vigorously than if they looked at faces of, of other races. And so we could see this actually, you know, in the brain, in the area uh, that is uh, implicated in, in face processing. Wow. So, and no one yeah. had
0: ever done this before.
1: No, no at- one had ever done that before. So uh, we were the first to, to show that effect. Wow.
0: Yeah. You, you describe how facial recognition and race... Used by oh, I love this part a band of purse snatchers in Oakland. That's right. And it's a really good story. <laughs> so can, can you can you kind of summarize it for us? So so this is back
1: in um, uh, 2014. I was uh, invited to, to go to Oakland to help the police department there with their reform efforts. And at the time I got there, you know, crime was was going down generally across the city. What year was that? This was uh, 2014. 2014. Yeah. And so crime was going down, uh, but there was a huge spike in crime in Oakland's uh, Chinatown area, and so they were trying to figure out what was going on, and, you know, basically there were uh, a lot of purse snatching. So uh, there were um, usually middle-aged Chinese women who were walking around, um, you know, uh, in that area, and uh, these were young, uh, sort of teenage uh, African-American boys that would um, come along and snatch their purses. Um, So they asked, you know, when they got some of the suspects, the the officers would ask them, well, why did you, you know, choose to rob that woman? Why did you, you know, go to this particular neighborhood? And they said, uh, because um, the Chinese people can't tell the brothers apart.
0: So, and that was for so real, right?
1: It was for real, yeah. So I was like, wow, do they know about the other race effect, right? Oh, so they figured it out. They would rob them and they could rob them in broad daylight and they wouldn't be able to ID them. They couldn't, um, really tell one, um, you know, sort of black face from another. And once they knew this, it was just like a, you know, a license to steal basically. So um, how,
0: so, but the person snatching did it ever stop? I mean, it stopped, right? So- yeah, it did
1: stop. It, but you know how it stopped? They uh, put cameras up. Um, oh. You know, and the, that and, like it. all the businesses actually put installed these cameras, and so the cameras could do what you know what the women couldn't, and then that's how that's how they solved the crimes.
0: Well, and I guess that yeah. didn't do much for. The relationship between Chinese and African-Americans. No, it no, didn't. Great, didn't it? <laughs> wow. wow. It, it did not. Wow. Um, um, <laughs> the studies that you have conducted are, they're, they're innovative, and I found them fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, you created studies on something called categorization, mm-hmm. and which is grouping... Categories like things together in which you describe in your book as mm-hmm. a universal function of the brain mm-hmm. that allows us to organize and manage the overload stimuli that constantly bombard us. So can you describe one of the studies in this area of categorization? and yeah. So and what you concluded? Right.
1: So categorization, yeah, it's just a basic function of the brain. It's, yeah, we're just bombarded with, you know, information and images and sounds, like everything, right, um, out in the world. And we need ways to package that. We need ways to organize it, uh, to make sense of it, to give it some kind of coherence so that we can make decisions, so that we can function in the world. And that um, categorization is, so we categorize everything, first of all. We Categorize, you know, furniture and trees and, you know, uh, cars, I mean, you name it. And we also categorize people. Um, and, but once we put people into those categories, we can attach beliefs, you know, about the, the people who are in that category and we can attach feelings, uh, you know, about the people we, that are in that category. So those beliefs are called stereotypes, you know, the, the feelings are called, you know, sort of are attitudes or the prejudice, and that that can actually Lead us to um, treat those people in different ways and to make different decisions about them. But the categorization, um, really, it's it's a it's we need that to function. um, But it's also
0: a precursor for bias. So do you did a study? Can you name one of the or describe one of the studies? Yeah, we've done
1: area? a number of studies on this, including um, studies that have to do, you know, with this other race effect that I told you about. So, you know, we've done studies where we will um, show people a face that's racially ambiguous uh, on a computer screen. And we uh, so I don't know we'll- if
0: it's person is
1: black or, or white or yeah white. it just looks kind of like you're not quite sure how to right. categorize the person and so then we'll tell them that this person is black or this person is white and then we would ask them to draw the image of the of the person on the on the computer screen to just look at it while the image stayed up on the screen and try to draw it as accurately as they could so that someone could you know sort of pick out um the the, the you know the photograph of the of the person that that you were drawing the image from and we found um, that, you know, people would draw the image in a way that was more consistent uh, with the category. So if they saw a face that was racially ambiguous, they would draw an image that was more black if we told them this is a black person. Uh, so, so yes, it's interesting. So that's, I mean, I told you about how our experience can, you know, influence how we see one another, uh, how we see faces in particular, but um, also the category categories that we have of each other can kind of distort our um our perception isn't she awesome, yeah.
0: awesome. <laughs> um, so thank you so I, I i'm just curious i mean for a, a a typical day in the life of a social psychologist i mean do you sit around and kind of oh i have an idea for you know the study i mean is that how it works and then you because you're very creative that is how it works, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny, I used
1: to, when I was an undergraduate, I was, um, I thought I was going to be an artist, and that's what I went really? to school to do, and I was in design school, and I thought, hey, you know, this isn't creative enough, actually, so I decided to do psychology instead.
0: But, wow. um, great. Right. Glad you did. <laughs> so, um, uh, so you, you mentioned something in your book called, um, Confirmation Bias. Mm-hmm. What is that?
1: It's, so we have all kinds of biases. I mean, I talk a lot in the book about racial bias, but we have, you know, biases, you know, about all kinds of groups, you know, based on gender and religion and, you know, uh, sexual orientation class and so forth and so and not only do we have biases about people we have biases in terms of how we think um and so this confirmation bias is this idea that um you know we kind of gravitate um towards the information that uh we already believe to be true so something that's consistent uh with our prior beliefs um you know that's that's the information that we like and we that's the information we remember that's the information we repeat um, and so and, and that's the and that 's the kind of information we um, search out you know we, we sort of seek out in the world we 're seeking out information that is consistent with what we already believe, and that information that doesn 't seem quite consistent, we kind of block that out a little bit we don 't remember it as much we don 't process it as thoroughly, so confirmation so- bias can be good or can be bad, or is it just... It can be bad, right? Because right. Um, it, it, it kind of um, sort of puts us in a situation where uh, we're not um, open anymore. We're not open to new information. We're not open to seeing other perspectives. Um, we're only open to um, sort of seeking out. Um, things that are consistent with our world right. view, right? So that could be bad and we, we can kind of see the evidence of that now, right? Yes. <laughs> In the world. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, uh, social media can make it a lot Absolutely. worse. Uh, definitely. Right. Because now we can only get fed the information that we already um, right. are ready
0: to believe. So right? We, believe. Yeah, we don't even have to
1: see Got information it. or hear information that's right. inconsistent with wow. our
0: world views. So w- one of the many reasons that I, I love this book is your description of the interactions with your sons of whom mm-hmm. you have three um, and how those interactions with your sons informed your research. Yes. Um, so there's a story you tell about an incident with one of your sons on a plane.
1: That's right. Would you tell us? That? <laughs> okay. I'll tell you this story. This is, um, One of my favorite stories, this is when my son was just five years old and he was on a plane with me and he was just so excited, right, to be on the plane with mommy. And he's looking all around and he's checking everyone out on the plane and he sees this guy and he says to me, hey, that guy looks like daddy. So I look at the guy, and he didn't look anything at all, like my husband, like nothing at all, right? So then I start to look around on the plane. I'm looking, I'm checking everyone out, and I notice that he was the only black guy on the plane. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to have to have a talk with my son about how not all black people look alike, right? (laughs) Right? So I'm getting ready to have the talk. You know, first of all, you have right. to you know, adjust the language, right, for a five-year-old. So right. I'm trying to adjust the language. I'm getting ready to lecture him. But before I do, you know, I realize that children are different from adults, right? They haven't had years and years of experience where they're kind of shaped to kind of see things in certain ways. And so I thought, well, maybe my child is seeing something that I'm not seeing. Maybe um you know, he, uh, maybe there's some resemblance there that I'm not picking up. And so I look at the guy and I look at his height and he was about four inches shorter than my husband. So nothing there. I look at his weight, nothing. I look skin color, no resemblance. I look facial features, no resemblance. And then I look at his hair and he has these long dreadlocks flowing down his back and my husband shaves his head. <laughs> And I thought, all right, (laughs) you know, you're going to get the talk, right? And so just, I'm about to give him the talk. And just as I, you know, sort of start to do this, he looks at me and my son says, I hope he doesn't rob the plane. And I said, what? What did you say? And he says it again. Well, I, I hope he doesn't rob the plane. And I said, well, why would you say that? You know, daddy wouldn't rob a plane. And he looked at me and he says, yeah, yeah, I know. And I said, well, why would you say that? And he looked at me with this really sad face, and he says, I don't know why I said that. I don't know why I was thinking that. So we're living with such severe racial stratification that even a 5-year-old can tell us what's supposed to happen next, right? Even with no evildoer, no hatred, you know, this wow. association between blackness and crime made its way into the mind of my five-year-old. Wow! So, wow.
0: You know, as compelling in the book are the descriptions of your own upbringing oh. and your personal experiences that, that informed your thinking on bias. And one of those experiences you describe in the book I've found to be absolutely jaw-dropping. Um, I'm not going to ask you to talk about it. You've got, you'll have to read this book because <laughs> it, it is absolutely jaw-dropping. In fact, after I read it, I had to close the book and just stop reading for a while. Mm. Absolutely. So can you tell us, without talking about that incident, can you tell us just a little bit about your family and your upbringing?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm the fifth child of five. And um, I grew up in an all-black world until I was 12 years old. And at that point, my parents announced that we were going to move uh, to a nearby suburb called Beechwood. And I didn't know much about Beechwood, but I knew there, there weren't any black people in Beachwood you know, at that time. And so I was really nervous, you know, right, about moving there and what was going to happen. I didn't know if I was going to be accepted. And, um, and I got there and I was, you know, accepted just fine. Um, but I, there were a couple things I could tell you about that. <laughs> One was that I couldn't tell their faces apart <laughs> because I had no experience. For real, you really couldn't. I, I could not. No, and it just I was in a panic about it because i didn 't know what was going on, and all of a sudden, I lost this ability to be able to recognize faces i, I did, and I think that experience kind of led me to be interested as a researcher in in face perception really, um, so that was one thing you know over time i was able to recognize those faces like i said it's really about experience yeah. i had to kind of train my brain to um actually um recognize faces that i had no contact with oh. before that 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 time but i was able to do it and we're all able to do it right it's a it's an experience driven uh, kind of thing but the second thing um, i noticed was a um, huge difference in resources right um so this was a place where they had you know just, I don't know. Just incredible um, resources, in, both in terms of the, you know, the, um, you know, the playing fields and the classrooms, the building, but also, um, you know, the teachers and and what they expected um, of you, and and uh, what they expected your future would be like. And so there was um, just uh, all this attention and guidance and um, this in a way, and resources in a way where I just felt like everything was opening up for me, um, that I was now on this trajectory where I was expected to go to college and that was the next step, you know, along the way where, as I wasn't, you know, um, you know, expected to, uh, go to college in my old neighborhood necessarily. And so, um, so things were so different and, and I felt like, um, they were different in a way that aligned with race um, because, again, this was an all-white neighborhood. It was very close by this other neighborhood uh, that I came from, the black neighborhood. It was just a bike ride away. But it was like it was a whole world away in, in terms of um, just the inequality that I saw there. And it just raised all kinds of questions in my mind about race. And, you know, there are questions that I had then that I just... Um, Never
0: stopped asking, really, um, as an adult and And as a researcher. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Interesting. Wow. From 2015 to 2017, you analyzed footage from 1,000 traffic stops made by 245 officers with the Oakland PD. Right. What did you learn?
1: So this is a uh, work that I, I did in collaboration. It was an interdisciplinary group. And so uh, I'm a social psychologist, but we worked with uh, linguists like Dan Jurofsky, and he's a, um, actually the chair of the linguistics department at Stanford, and his um, graduate students and um, postdoctoral research associates. So we had a, a, a large group of, of, of people uh, working on this, and we were really interested in analyzing, um, you know, the footage to look for patterns Footage of um, uh, this. So this is uh, body-worn camera footage. Right. So this is, you know, the the uh, cameras that the, the footage that comes from the cameras that officers wear. And when we got there, they had had the cameras for about four years already, but they really weren't looking at. The vast majority of the footage gone, went unexamined. Um, so they would look at the footage if, um, there was an officer involved shooting, if there was a complaint even. Uh, but, you know, they didn't really have a system for, um, actually analyzing, um, you know, you know, just routine, uh, traffic stops. And so we wanted to look at these everyday interactions. Um, most Americans, you know, that's the context under which they come into contact with the police is during a traffic stop. And we wanted to just see, um, understand what that interaction was like and whether the interaction was different if you were a black driver and stop versus a white driver. So that's what we looked at. And um, so we um, use machine learning techniques to actually um, uh, be able to uh, analyze this this footage. What and do you mean
0: machine learning?
1: So, um, so a thousand uh, stops, that's a lot for Right. Any one person <laughs> right. to analyze, right? And so, what we did was uh, we had the um, footage transcribed, and from those transcripts, we could wow. uh, look for um, certain words that were associated with um, respect, um, having more respect or less respect. And so, we were interested um, in the respect that officers were communicating to to the drivers so, when they were so stopped. So it was less the and visual
0: so, and more the verbal. It was the verbal, yeah, and
1: it was the language of, of the officers in particular. And we knew from, you know, linguistics and social psychology and so forth, you know, what, um, what words are associated with you know, respect, um, and and which which aren't, uh, or, or or less respect, and we found that officers were professional overall, but um, there was a, a, a difference uh, by the race of the driver and the uh, and the respect How they so? think. Well, uh, they treated uh, black drivers with less respect than white drivers, and um, and they did this um, throughout the um, interaction. So it started even
0: with the greeting uh so they would greet the person with you know if they were um so so for example how would a disrespectful greeting go
1: so a disrespectful greeting would go hey bro a uh, dude uh, that kind of thing <laughs> african americans uh, when that happened it was african american drivers who received that um uh, white drivers were more likely to receive sir and mister and ma'am and those more um uh, formal titles uh, yeah so so there so and then there was less blatant um things like um they uh just you know, for, for white drivers would, um, offer more reassurance to them, uh, during the stop. They would say, you know, it'll be okay, you know, don't worry, that kind of thing. Um, that's never happened to me. Me either. I ha- I didn't know it happened no. actually until I. <laughs> it'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. So, um, so, and then at the end of the stop, uh, it, there was a difference there too. They would express concern for the safety of white drivers more so than black drivers. They, you know, say, you know, you know, we want you to be safe out there, that kind of thing, uh, before they departed. Um, less likely to do that with, with black drivers. So, so yeah, so it was um, in subtle ways and, and not so subtle ways that we saw differences. And we were just really interested in this because it really um, can affect how, you know, people think about not just that interaction and that one officer, but um, about, you know, the police in general. And so um, it's it's a site for, um, wow. you know, so re- for kind of understanding um, sort of where you stand and, you know, and, you know, just uh, how um, that interaction, I think, reveals so much about, um, you know, police community um, relations, really.
0: Right. Right. You've been teaching police officers to recognize and and understand implicit bias for 15 years now. Um, Are you hopeful or are you hopeless or both about policing in America? Well, it, it
1: may surprise you, but I'm hopeful. You want? Uh, yeah, Why? I'm, I'm actually quite hopeful. I'm not as hopeful about, um, you know, the, the the training itself. Just sort of, you know, you know, presenting, you know, sort of what we know about implicit bias, or you know, having a. You know, half a day training or, or two day training or what have you. And these trainings are happening all over the country yeah. now, right? It's a this cottage
0: is, industry now. It yeah.
1: is, it is. These, And not just with the police, right? right. And other workplaces right. and in schools and, um, you know, just, th- that's the thing, right? Yes. To, to do, uh, so I'm less, um, hopeful about that because one, one reason is just because we haven't, you know, really evaluated how effective those trainings are. Um, And and also, um, you know, I I know that it it matters more kind of um, sort of this – this kind of uh, sort of practicing other ways of doing things that the, the norms in the place, in, in a, in a workplace or in the police department matter a lot. That, you know, the practices that they're engaged in, the policies, those things matter a lot. One of the, the things that I think I'm most proud of in Oakland, um, is that, um, you know, with, um, a, a number of, of colleagues, we, uh, sat down, uh, with members of the department and we thought about, um, how they can reduce the number of stops of of law-abiding, you know, uh, people, community members in Oakland. And um, we uh, decided that um, on, uh, you know, so in, in Oakland, when they stop someone, when an officer stops someone on the street, they're required to complete a form that says why they made the stop. So, they have to say why they made the stop, the location of the stop, the race of the person who was stopped, and so forth. So we added a, a question to that form, which is, um, is this stop intelligence-led, yes or no?
0: Intelligence led, yeah.
1: And what th- what they mean by that is, um, do you have um, you know sort of credible um, information or evidence to tie this particular person to a specific crime, basically? Um, and so they had to answer that question and to think about that for each and every stop they made. And so that slows you down, right? Um, that um, and we were trying to um, have them sort of uh, think about criminal wrongdoing um, and, and sort of. Discourage um, you know, them from sort of just using their intuition about you know, who was um, right. you know, up to uh, no good, uh, right? And so we found that in 2017, before the addition of this um, question, uh, about, there were about 32,000 stops in, in Oakland across the city. And in 2018, with the addition of the question, um, that went down to under 20,000 stops. Yeah. We found also that African American stops so uh, African Americans were disproportionately stopped uh, um, so those stops went down by 43% so a huge difference, right? And 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 they went down at the same time. You know, the crime rate continued to fall. So there was no issue, right, right? Of just like having fewer contacts meant that crime was going to shoot up, which is what they feared. Right. Um, so it was it was a, a big win,
0: right? Because absolutely, um, yeah, absolutely. yeah. You write about spending time teaching incarcerated men at San Quentin. Um, can yeah. you tell us a bit about that experience?
1: Yeah. So. Uh, Actually, when I first went to San Quentin to teach a class, I think I had been teaching at Stanford for about twelve years at that point, and I wanted to um, go to a prison to teach to talk about you know the work that i 've been doing on you know uh, race and crime, but also um, to talk to them about social psychology the, you know my my field and so i I went there and it, it was i 'll never forget this this was the very first um, course that I taught there it was a very first class. It was the first day of class. And like I had done at Stanford for years, I would ask, um, you know, I asked the, the men, this is at San Quentin, so it's a, a, a male uh, prison. And I would ask them to, you know, s- s- introduce themselves and to say why it is that they wanted to take the class. And uh, just like at Stanford, some of the the answers were similar, like, um, you know, they thought the course would be interesting or, you know, they needed the course for credit for, you know, a requirement. You know, that that happens a lot. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, there are also answers that I just never heard before. So, for example, so one man, he said that he was taking the course because his daughter was depressed and uh, he was worried about her, and he uh, thought that taking a class in psychology might, you know, help him to talk to her and to, you know, help her through it, um, and then uh, there was a guy who I think was about in his 40, I think it was around 45 or so, or so he um, said that he was taking the course because he understood how things worked um, inside San Quentin, he kind of knew the rules and all of that, and he really understood the place, Um, but um, he wanted to take the course because he wanted to understand, he says, I want to understand how free people think. And I thought, wow, you know, he had been incarcerated since he was 14 years old and he was 45 now, right? So he spent his entire adult life in prison and he was just desperate to understand how prison had kind of warped his um, view of things and how it had shaped him. And, Mm -hmm. and it was just, I mean, at that moment, I just thought, wow, Wow. you know, um, you know, I, 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 felt like, you know, I had come to the prison because, you know, we are all kind of shackled by, you know, um, the societal beliefs about men like him. Right. Um, right. and men like him, you know, they're dehumanized, they're right. discarded. And, and I felt like I was there actually to move a little closer to freedom as well. Wow. So, um, wow. so yeah, it's
0: amazing. Wow. Um, was he African American?
1: No, he, he, he wasn't. He, he was Filipino. Oh, yeah,
0: since he was 14. Wow.
1: Yes, 14 years old.
0: You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. You you did some work with Nextdoor. Mm -hmm. That's the the online platform for sharing information with nearby neighbors. Yes. Um, What was all that about?
1: So yeah so the next door um, like you said I mean they're, they're, they they um, their whole thing is to bring people together to create you know happier and safer and you know uh, neighborhoods where you know people are you know friendly to each other and all of that and so they wanted to create this space where people could gather and share information but they had a problem uh, with racial profiling on the platform so um, you know the you know, typically went uh, someone would look outside their window uh, and they would see a black uh, person in the otherwise white neighborhood. They would get nervous. They would start to contact, um, use next door to contact all the neighbors to say, hey, suspicious person in the neighborhood. Uh, they would sometimes call the police and so forth. And so um, they were uh, just alarmed at this. So the the um, one of the co-founders, Sarah Leary, reached out to me. She knew I studied bias. I'm right down the street. Their headquarters uh, actually is in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And so she um, wanted to talk about, well, how do we curb uh, profiling on the platform? And from talking to me and others and pouring through the literature, she learned that one way to curb, um, you know, bias is to slow people down. Like we're more likely to act on bias um, when we don't have time to think things through. We don't, you know, have time to reflect, uh, right? Um, We're just, um, you know, having to make split-second decisions. And These well-practiced associations, right, this Black Crime Association can um, kind of leap forward and affect our decision-making in in those circumstances. So they wanted to slow people down. So Um, how did you slow them down? So what they did was to um, develop a checklist. Um, it was a three-item checklist. And so before you're able to just say suspicious person and, you know, shout out to all their neighbors, you had to um, look and sort of um, at three questions. And one is, what is it about this person's behavior that's suspicious? So it can't be a social category, right? It can't be suspicious black man, right? right. Um, and so it had to be a behavior. What is he doing that's suspicious? These second thing was to describe the person um, in enough detail um, that you didn't capture a whole group, right? So you're, you're wanting to describe this person, um, their individual features, um, so um, other people weren't harmed by the description. And then the third um, um, item on that checklist was to explain what racial profiling was, because it turns out that not everybody understood um, they didn't have a real, like a definition for racial profiling. So they didn't understand what it was or that they were engaging in it. And so they gave them a definition and then they told them that it was prohibited on the platform. So this is another way in which um, you can um, mitigate biases by, you know, having cultural norms in a space that, that, that say that we're against this, we won't allow this and so forth. And so, you know, using that checklist, they were able to curb, profiling by over 75% uh, on the platform. Wow. It's kind of simple uh, sure technique is. here, right? Yeah. So.
0: And I think it's significant that the founder reached out, realized yeah. I need to do something here. And, right. and was proactive.
1: Right. And, and that's the other thing I'll say about that is like, oftentimes people think about bias as a individual thing. It's something that we're kind of wrestling with on our own. And we want to, you know, like figure out how to sort of um, uh, put the brakes on bias or mitigate bias for ourselves. But um, I, th- I think sort of our, our, you know, institutions or, you know, there are companies or corporations and, you know, our schools and, you know, so the, our, Institutions play a role here it 's not just right. us as individuals that they have responsibility uh, for this as well and The thing about next door is that they are in ninety five percent of the neighborhoods now in the u s and so when they are trying to make a difference here, I mean they can make a huge difference for. Millions right. of people, and so uh, by just putting that checklist up there, they're kind of changing the mindset, right, of of all of these yes. people, and so so that's that's a good thing.
0: Fantastic. You know, I sometimes hear white people say, "Oh, I, I don't see color," mm-hmm. um, and when the subject of race comes up, "No, no, no, I, I don't see color," yeah. and, and I I cringe. You know, every time I hear it, um, do you cringe? And if you do, what's the problem with this line of thinking, I don't see color?
1: Right. First tell me, why do you cringe?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm asking the question. Right? Um, it makes me feel very uncomfortable because it's obvious. I mean, I know who I am and I know what I look like. How can you not see? Yeah. Me. So right.
1: So you feel like you're not seen. Exactly. Basically. I like not right. seeing me. Right. Right. Yeah, so there's that. I, I guess I cringe for that reason as well. But also, as a researcher, we find that, um, you know, just, um, you know, asking, so trying to motivate people to be colorblind actually is not helpful. And, and in some ways, it can uh, lead to more bias, it can lead to more discrimination. Uh, so there's research on this as well. They, they've done research, for example, um, uh, at, at elementary schools where they'll ha- take, um, fourth and fifth graders and they'll tell them, um, you know, we all believe in racial equality. The, the best way to, um, you know, achieve that is to be colorblind. Or they took, um, these, um, students and said, you know, we all believe in racial equality. The best, you know, to be a good person basically is to, um, is to value diversity. So they got opposite messages. Um, and then, uh, they were exposed to this, um, child who knocked a a black kid down on a soccer field and and the child was asked, why did you knock him down? And I think he punched him or something. Mm -hmm. And the the kid said, well, I did it because he's black um, and black people are aggressive and I don't like black people, that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. right? Pretty blatant. Um, And so the finding was is that when they asked the children um, about whether this was discrimination or not, they found that those who were told to value diversity – um, the vast majority of them saw it as discriminatory, mm-hmm. um, but when they asked the children who were told um, that color blindness is the way to go, um, only half of them actually saw that incident um, as discriminatory and so the finding was is that when they 're told not to see color uh, I, I mean it's not, uh, they, they also don 't see discrimination um, and, and if the whole idea behind color blindness right is to try to um, you you know, to, to fight inequality, um, the, what the finding was is that, you know, people aren't fighting the inequality, you know, when they don't see color because they're, they don't see the inequality either. Um, and so, uh, it actually puts, it makes us everything worse off.
0: Got yeah. It. So what, what do you say to somebody, you know, you're in a conversation with someone who's white says, well, I don't see color, but what, what, what's the proper kind of response? Like go read well, Jennifer's book. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I mean, I mean, definitely a lot of people are taught that. I think teachers, you know, teach students that in school, you know, researchers have shown by the age of 10, you know, 10 years old, you know, children are already know that it's not proper, it's not polite to mention someone's race. And so, um, wow. so it's, it's just a real problem because, uh, so there's an issue of not seeing inequality, but there's also an issue of just not knowing how to talk about race, right? So if you can't see color, that means you can't really talk about race, and then we, you know, we grow up and we become adults and we have all these issues, but then we're actually not able to talk about it. We don't have the language to talk about it. We are We don't have practice, you know, talking about this with each other. We're uncomfortable when the subject comes up, and so it's... Um, that's not helpful, Yeah. right?
0: Right, exactly. So in the book, you tell some of these wonderful stories about people that you met in, in, in your journey in mm-hmm. writing the book. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them you met when you went to Charlottesville. Yeah. During, it was the summer of 2017, the summer right. of hate. Um, why did you go to Charlottesville? And just briefly, because we're going to take some audience questions, what oh. did you learn? Yeah, I,
1: so I, I went there uh, because I wanted to understand how... You know, that summer of hate, how the Unite the Right march, how it affected people on the college campus, on um, UVA's campus, the University of Virginia and I wanted to understand how that affected, you know, students and professors, both inside and outside the classroom. Um, I uh, wanted to sort of understand how they were trying to move forward, um, how it affected, you know, racial climate and, and and so forth. So that's why I went, and uh, when I went, it, it's interesting. I thought, you know, I was going to kind of start understanding this and learning more once I reached the campus. But it turned out as soon as I got off the plane, when I was still at the airport, um, I was already getting a lesson, right? I, right. I, uh, Remember the story. I uh, story. at the airport, I, I hopped into an Uber to uh, get to the campus. And the first thing the Uber driver says to me is, um, so what brought you to town? Right. And I thought, whoa, because <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about it, right. Because I'm, I'm, should I, you know, talk about, you know, this book that I'm writing. Should I talk about racial bias? So the Uber driver was the middle-aged guy. He was white. Um, we were in the South. Um, I, I, I was nervous. I, I wasn't sure if he was, you know, part of the march or if he was. I didn't know what side he was on. Right. And so in a way, it was like my own bias, right? Um, you know, kind of leaping forward because I, i I'm, I'm, you know, I didn't know who this person was. Did he have and a
0: Southern accent? He, whole, did. Southern he did. Point. He did. Yep. He
1: had a Southern accent. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean that right. he was marching. You right. know, right. 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 <laughs> you know right. he, that doesn't make him a white supremacist. But I was nervous. Right. You know, because of his category, again, uh, that yep. that he might be. And so, and then I caught myself and I thought, well, no, I'm going to, talk to him. I'm going to tell them why I'm here. And so, you know, I said, hey, you know, I'm here to, um, I'm working on this book on racial bias. I'm here to talk to people about what happened here, uh, this, this summer. And he just launched into this. We had a huge, this conversation about, um, his, um, the, the person who helped to raise him, the person who was almost like a mother uh, to him was a domestic worker. She was a black woman, um, who, um, uh, was the person he said that he, one of the people he loved most in the world. And he started sort of talking to me about her and the fond memories uh, that he had of her. And, uh, he, and he was almost, he was like kind of tearing up even. Um, well, I heard that th- I was in the mm-hmm. back, but you know, just his yeah. voice was kind of a shake at times. And it turned out that he, she had just passed away. And so this was kind of fresh and raw for him. And so I'm relaxing, right? The whole yeah. time he's Talking about you know you're safe loving this black yeah. woman right so I uh, and then the the, the tone cha- his t- tone changed and he stopped talking and then he announces he says um, there's bigotry in my veins and I thought oh bigotry in your veins and I thought well when do you feel it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I'm in the back seat. i was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then, oh dear. And he, and he thought about it and he says, you know, he says, I feel it. Um, when I'm outnumbered, I could feel it rising up. And he says, um, you know, if, if he's the only white person in the otherwise black space, and he'd also spent some time in Florida and he said, it wasn't just with African Americans. If he was, um, you know, in an environment where he was surrounded by, uh, you know, Latinos that he would feel it there too. And, um, it was just really interesting because that conversation set the tone for my visit there because, I mean, a lot of the, um, you, know, the you know, the Unite the Right march, the the, the whole um, uh, pull towards white supremacy, right, is this feeling of white genocide. It's the feeling of losing your standing in a world, of being outnumbered, right. basically. And he's telling me that that's when he felt the bias rise up, was when he was outnumbered. So...
0: Yeah. You have so many of these good stories that are in the book. I mean, it's just intriguing, perhaps, as you put you know, your research together. It, they're just terrific. Um, so we, we have so many questions here, uh, Ron, and unfortunately, we're not going to get through all of them. But let, okay. let me start. What did you think about how Starbucks handled its response to the incident where two black men went into the Starbucks in Philadelphia, right. and before they knew it, they were handcuffed for waiting while black? Right. Um, so, but you're
1: <laughs> Waiting without using the bathroom while black. Ah, <laughs> yes. yes. I mean, uh, they right. wanted to use the That's bathroom. Right. Wait, waiting um, without purchasing something while black. Yeah, that was, um, you know, as we know, yeah, they, um, Starbucks decided to um, really confront this directly, right? They, um, you know, closed all of their stores, um, you know, across the country and had this implicit bias training. Um, and uh, it was a statement i mean in a positive way it was a statement right that they took this seriously that they cared about it that they um it was a statement about what they stood for and what they valued um all of that um but we don't know um whether that training was effective um we don't know um if it was effective for how long we don't know uh, a lot you know about um you know whether that made uh the difference in terms of um
0: actual sort of interactions right. uh uh, you know, with um, with the public. So just doing the training is not enough. There has to be... No. The out- you have to measure outcomes, and that's not being done. Well, you so-
1: have to measure outcomes. That's not being done. But also you have to... Um, you know, approach it um, from a lot of different angles, from different directions. So the training could be one thing, but you also have to, you know, look at, you know, policies. They actually did change their bathroom policy yes, after did. that um, yeah. incident so that, you know, you know, that you didn't have to, you know, actually pay for something before yeah. you use the bathroom. Um, so you have to um, look at how you can change your practices. Um, again, so we are talking about how bias is not something that's just in one person's head, right? um it's something um that um you know, the environment that you're in can give rise to. Uh, and so that's why it's really important in our workplaces, um, you know, in, you know, our schools, right. Um, when we're in these environments, there's a, a lot of control, um, people, leadership, you know, uh, people in, uh, positions of power have, um, you know, over what kind of, um, environment we're in. And so that can influence, um, whether we're going to, you know, whether that's going to trigger bias and, and whether we're going to act on that bias. So, so, so that's 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 vital um right. i think oftentimes people think that you know if either you're biased or you're not um but you know bias is something uh, that really i mean it's something we're all vulnerable to but it's 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 something that is um situationally uh, triggered um so and just knowing that gives us a lot of control over it it gives us some power over whether we're going to uh, let it affect our decisions and our actions wow.
0: Yeah. Um, so here's another one. It says, it makes me wonder how many people of color have been wrongly imprisoned because of biased identification by eyewitnesses. Do you have any yeah. thoughts about that?
1: Yes, yes. Um, so there, um, you know, there, there are uh, a lot of people who are interested in, in, in that, right? There's... Um, you know there's a you know i'm blanking <laughs> oh the innocence project that's the name i'm trying mm-hmm. to think of um so there's um you know uh, there there are people there who are actually tracking this and looking at it and looking at um uh, wrongful imprisonment especially looking at um death sentencing for yes. example right. and you know people have been lots of people have been exonerated uh through um you know, DNA right. evidence, but a lot of those people, um, were, you know, sent to, to prison and even on death row on the basis of, um, you know, this eyewitness testimony, or at least that play, play, played a pivotal role, right. um, uh, because, um, people believe that you know you should be especially in a situation like that that people w- wouldn't forget that face right of this person who has done this but it turns out that that people can and especially cross racial identifications um you know they're a lot harder than intra-racial identifications and wow. so you see that there too yeah. so if you add up you know the you know, people who were falsely imprisoned um, due to, you know, the, the eyewitness testimony and then also um, false confessions. It's, 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 it's more than, you know, it's, it's more than half. I mean, I don't remember the exact numbers, right. but
0: it's, um, it's the majority. Well, here's another. Can you make two suggestions of what we can do to make a conscious effort to be more aware of our biases and to change? That's a great question. Um,
1: you know, I think one of the... Main things we could do is to slow down, you know, and and I think that um, slowing down, you know, matters in all kinds of environments. We talked about the slowing down of the, you know, you know, police officers in Oakland. You know, when they're making a stop, there's a pause there right now where they're sort of thinking, why am I, um, you know thinking about, you know, stopping this person, um, you can have that we, that pause makes a difference in the workplace, that pause makes a difference in, the, in, in our schools and that pause makes a difference you know, for us as, 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 as individuals like that, again, uh, when you don't have, um, you know, time to really think things through, we um, borrow, um, you know, from these associations that are well rehearsed, that we've, that have become automatic associations over time and they start to influence um, you know the decisions we make; they start to influence, um, you know, uh, how we act and so forth. So the slowing down is a big one, and being, um, you know, just um, being more reflective. I think about um,
0: those kinds of things. Got it. So we have now come to the end of our program. I mean, and um, I thank you so much. And and what I'd like to do this is I think that the perfect ending to our time together um, is there's this touching passage in Bias, and it's on pages 7 and Mm 8. And I think it would be perfect uh, if you would, for all of us, read to us, if you wouldn't mind, that passage, and we'll close our program with that.
1: Okay. I have to put on my glasses. All right. Okay. Confronting implicit bias requires us to look in the mirror. To understand the influence of implicit racial bias requires us to stare into our own eyes to face how readily stereotypes and unconscious associations can shape our reality. By acknowledging this distorting lens of fear and bias, we move one step closer to clearly seeing each other. And we move one step closer to clearly seeing the social harms, the devastation that bias can leave in its wake. Neither our evolutionary path nor our present culture dooms us to be held hostage by bias. Change requires a kind of open-minded attention that is well within our reach. This book is a representation of the journey I have taken. The unexpected findings I have uncovered, the stories I have heard, the struggles I have encountered, and the triumphs I have been buttressed by. I invite you to join me. Thank you. you.
0: You're awesome. Thank you. I, I hope that you. I hope that you all um, enjoyed this evening's program brought to you by the Commonwealth Club of Silicon Valley. And again, we'd like to thank so much uh, Jennifer Eberhardt, author of Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do, and our audience here in Palo Alto, and those of you joining us on the radio and on the web. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Thank you all.
1: Thanks. Make sure that's good over there.